I'm Dean Newland, and welcome to the Business of Intuition, where I coach, facilitate, train, and speak on the hard science and meaningful experience of intuitive leadership in business, so you can make better decisions, forge real connections, and creatively solve problems to amplify your impact and simplify your life. Welcome to the Business of Intuition. I once heard that the speed of change right now is the slowest it's going to be for the rest of our lives. That's terrible news for our brain. Our brain exerts a lot of energy when creating and responding to change. And in fact, there's a part of our brain that would rather lie on the beach and watch the sun slowly set than have to design, say, a return to work policy during the Great Resignation. So the question is, can we make change more effective and less stressful? On the individual level, effective positive change requires speaking up, being unpopular, telling the truth, all actions that can evoke fear. On the organizational level, we must identify if we are making change for economic reasons, capacity reasons, or both. Each has its own unique process. However, in most companies, Organization-wide change is initiated by the executives and pushed down, no matter if the reasons are for economic or capacity gains. And this one-size-fits-all approach to organizational change management is often disastrous. My next guest on the business of intuition understands what it takes to be a bold and courageous change agent and how to make change happen on an organizational level. Tom Tonkin is an executive in professional services and software sales with over 25 years of business and technology experience. He is currently serving as Senior Principal in Change Management and Transformation, Thought Leadership and Advisory Services. Tom spent a major part of his career at Oracle Corporation. He was the Senior Director of Sales Performance Group in Oracle's Global Sales Academy, He was also served in the various leadership roles at Oracle in both sales and consulting across mid-sized enterprises in North America and globally. He holds a PhD in organizational leadership from Regent University and a master's of science in organizational leadership with honors with a focus on leadership and management from Regis University. He was also received multiple business certifications and is an award-winning researcher and author. Tom Tonkin on the business of intuition. Well, Tom, thanks a lot for being on the show. And one of the things that you had said as we were prepping for this interview was that that you are a recovering executive, which it's not a phrase you hear a lot. You know, you hear it in terms of like alcoholics or what have you, <laughs> but you don't hear it in terms of that sort of phraseology. Tell me what that means to you. Well, it's funny because I mean, there's a a bunch of terminology that we borrow from that. I mean, aren't, aren't we workaholics? There you I go. Mean, right? I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens to it. And what's what's interesting, Dean, is that a little bit of the conversation we had about this, this corporate life that is outside of the work part, where you're thinking of things and coming up with really good ideas and trying to present them. And then you're fearful, right? You're fearful of the repercussion if you don't get it right, or if you're not aligned with the company message or the boss, but maybe you've got enough data or maybe again, you know, your tagline around your intuition is strong around this and you feel like you got to tell somebody. 
do that for 30 years. Right. And then, yeah. and then you're like, uncle, what's <laughs> like, right. And you're like, because you're dodging bullets and you're, you're, you're trying to keep track of the meta, right. The meta hierarchy, right. Not the, not the lay, you know, we like to listen to our employees and blah, 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 and all this other stuff. And, but there's this meta hierarchy out, you know, hierarchy of the hierarchy that basically says, well, but you know, make sure you're in line and make sure you have evidence and make sure you have all this other stuff. Yeah. You know, it's you get a little PTSD and, and I don't I don't use that term lightly because obviously there's people that really do that. But there is this flinch that occurs in corporate America that you, you tend to sit there and go, you know, why bother? Right. Like, why bother sharing? Anything? And as we were talking about before I hit the record button, we were linking this back to intuition and saying, even if I have all my data lined up and it's irrefutable, I still might have fear. That's correct. To yes. speak up. And now if you add something that doesn't have all of that background data to support it, maybe it's a hunch, it's a, it's, a, it's a gut feel, something just doesn't feel right, I can't even create the data to support it, that's even more risky. It, it is. And then let's go to the next step. The next step is I open my mouth and, and let's say I'm like the lowest in the totem pole and all this other stuff. What you have instantly done is you flatten the playing field. Like you walk in and you say, well, we just ran a research that completely, completely disagrees, Mr. Boss, Mrs. Boss, with what you just said. Boom, right? You just lay it on the table. You went from that pyramid. Now you're down to this flat field. And it's very uncomfortable with those in upper hierarchy. Because now you're my number one, you're like my peer, kind of, but you're not supposed to be. And two, like you are, quote unquote, smarter or know more about what I do. And now we're this level playing field. And that's where the awkwardness kicks in. Like what, what happens there? I am hopeful that one of two things happens. If you're a good leader. Let's just go down and, and I'm not going to define good leader. Everyone knows what a good leader is, right? So if you're a good leader, you would say, hey, Tom, tell me more. Or how'd you get that? Or whatever it might be. Let's explore that because I never thought of it. And who knows? Maybe you get a really good idea out of the conversation. If you're a bad leader, you're, you know, you're, you're quickly you're going to change the subject. You're going to move forward. You're going to probably do some name dropping. And you're probably going to be to say something like, yeah, Tom, I understand. But we had this other meeting that you weren't invited to where we discussed this and we've got it all hammered out, you know, and, and, and pull a little bit of rank, if you will, to, to get out of that conversation. So it's not necessarily just being afraid and, and, and the consequences, but what a missed opportunity for the organization as a whole. No kidding. And so you're, you're talking basically the opposite of this fear would be trust. It. it I mean, the trust in the sense that you're not going to get clubbed over the head for, for right. whatever comes out of your mouth, because maybe, I'll face it, right? Let's say intuition. Let's go down that path. Your attention could be wrong. You may not, you, you may not have all of the data, right. but you had this hunch and you should be able to speak up and go, you know, Tom, that's a really good idea. Let me tell you why we don't think that way. And then they explain it and go, okay, I get it. Right. And, you know, more information has been exchanged. Um, are you familiar with the Johari window? Oh, yeah. Yes. Teach on it all the time. Right. So the Johari well, window. Explain is, it to our listeners because not everybody knows that. But just give it a, a quick 30 seconds. Yeah. So it's a two by two matrix where it compares knowledge between two different people, two different 
organizations, two different worlds. And, it, and the four matrix are what I know. And let's, let's compare you and Dean as the example, me and Dean, right? So it's what I know and what Dean knows. That's one quadrant. Another quadrant is things that I know and things that, doesn't, that Dean doesn't know. My blind third, spots. Right. Yeah. Uh, third quadrant is um, what, I, uh, what I don't know and what Dean does know. And yeah. eventually the fourth quadrant, things that both Dean and I don't know. Right. And everything fits in one of those four boxes. Right. What I have said from the Jahari window is much more interesting to hang out that fourth quadrant, things that yes. you and I both don't know. And people will say to me, well, in any given context, that box might be empty. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say probably not, though, because we have evidence that things that both Dean and I knew at one point were things that Dean and I didn't know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. So we went through the journey um, to get to know things and, and explore and potentially learn and create solutions. And, you know, the journey is significantly, you know, more interesting than the destination. But if you map that out, you know, it, it kind of sort of drops the scales a little bit of, of formality, become a little more informal. You become a little more synthesize to the relationships that you're trying to conduct if you map knowledge in, in, in that fashion. Well, I think that if you take that Johari window model that you just described, there are times when we would be brainstorming with others. There could be an ideation session and we have set up a structure in a meeting or a conversation specifically to dive into the unknown. And then there's another type of conversation where you know what? We have a patient on the table. They're coding. We need to save them now. We're not going to do something outside the box because we have a process that we're going to follow. So it's going to be what we know. We're going to go to box one. And so I guess my, what's your thoughts on being able to sort of know which box you need to be in given your current situation? Well, at any given time, you're either going to be comfortable or uncomfortable. Right. So if, if again, going back to my example, there are two boxes that I am uncomfortable with and two boxes that you're uncomfortable with, just the unknown boxes. Right. And, you know, I do believe that as a matter of fact, that's how I solve problems with my clients is I, I triage them. Right. And I, I triage them and, and I say this kind of tongue in cheek, but sometimes it doesn't come off that way. I mean, you bring me a problem and I look at it and I go, well, A, no matter what you do, um, you're going to survive. You'll be fine. You don't need me. B, no matter what you do, guess what, well, dude, you're going to die, <laughs> right? Whatever that <laughs> problem is. And then C, you know something? I can contribute to solving versus not solving this problem. And so therefore, that's the one I'll, I will attack first. Now take those paradigms and put them together, right? What, what, what is it that you have to, you know, person in the dying table? I, there's nothing I can do. Someone else has to jump in here. <laughs> right, right. Right. So I'm in the one of the two unknowns. Yes. Or I can say I can make a difference between this person dying, this person living. And that's going to be, guess what? In one of those two other ones where I know something, maybe everyone else knows it, but I may know something and someone else doesn't know it. That's when I need to jump in mm -hmm. and do that. So, I mean, that's how I would know which box to sort of activate, if you will, in the Johari window is do a little triage of my own yeah. per scenario, context, whatever. That's right. That's right. Well, I, we were talking about the TED talk that I did. Going back to this example, I think that I, I referenced where I've seen so many times, I know you have too, where we talk about 
we want to engage everybody in a conversation. And yet it seems like the subject matter expert or the person who has the highest title in the room is the one who has the right to speak. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, but you're not the expert in marketing, you know, so money, we don't, we don't say this outright, but it becomes known that we don't have a voice in that. And it, it goes counter to our values. It goes counter to what the organization really stands for, at least supposedly stands for. Mm-hmm. I guess like, I mean, it, it, so you've, you've gone, you, you sort of say that you were a recovering executive. You've, You've got PhDs and master's degrees in organizational leadership. You've worked with some big companies with before in sales and so forth. What's your main message, Tom? What are you What are you wanting people to know that your background, experience, intuition, knowledge, whether it's box one or four, you tell me, what is the core thing that you want us to know? I am the guy that actually pulls the trigger. So there was a time that I was working for one of those big companies. and. I was working for a boss that, let's just say, wasn't very good. (laughs) And that boss had to know more than anyone else. And that boss made sure that they beat everyone into submission, except me. And got to be a point where everyone was following this boss and they were doing whatever they told them to do. And I didn't. And then there came a time where it was a headcount reduction time. Uh-huh. And it so happened that right before headcount reduction time, this particular boss was um, understood where they were going to end up. And so they sent me this note buttering me up because what happened, I'll, I'll, I'll get to the end and then I'll tell you the note. The note was, I mean, the, the end was that her and all of my peers all got fired, except me. Because I kind of held to my ground, held to my intuition, held to my all that other stuff. But the note basically said something, and I paraphrase, I really like the way you, um, I forget, challenge status quo or something like that. Sort of this veiled compliment of me having argued the entire time and yet, you know, because, you know, the, the counterintuitive was basically against this boss's realization. Right. And so I have done this and held that forever. I'll give you an example of what happened last week. I feel so strongly in intuition and in, in data that I submitted a consulting services agreement that is fully guaranteed. If I don't achieve these metrics, which I laid out, dollar values, by the way, seven figures, Mm -hmm. you owe me absolutely nothing. Mm. So do you want to work with somebody that does that, right? That has that level of belief. Now, mind you, you come to me and you ask me a bunch of questions that I have no idea about, then that's not going to be a different deal. Right. Right. That's a different deal. Right. But it's, you know, you, what do you want to know about me? I mean, as far as my skills and all that, they're all well documented in the, in the interwebs. But my approach has always been, you know, stick my foot in my mouth, if I will, or whatever, or take that intuitive next step or, or be married to my convictions, whatever the term you want to use. And then along the lines, it's like, well, how convicted are you to those things? And in the business world, that's the only one I can come up with was, well, I'll, I'll guarantee my work. Mm-hmm. 
right? So there's, there's, you know, if, how expert are you, Tom, or how smart are you or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, those that want to be, and let me be now more specific, better at sales, meaning you want to, you're a sales leader and you want to, you know, you have your team perform better or right down to an, an individual contributor. I'm, I'm willing to guarantee some ideas and some thoughts and some, some performance to get you to a place where you become a sales professional. So you've said a lot there and let me yes, unpack sorry. this a little bit. So <laughs> if I take this as a one hand, you're saying guarantee your work. I'm picking this apart a little bit. Yep. On the other hand, you're saying be bold and trust your convictions, however you got there through data, through intuition. And, and if that means you need to buck the system, so be it. Is that your message? That is correct. All right. And so I agree with that. I, I think it might scare some people based on who's listening, that that might sound good, but doing it is a different thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, career limiting is, is a word. Um, yep. Consultants like myself and you are always at risk of losing the contract because of the bold things we say to our clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, translate that into an employee who's working for a company, they could lose their job, especially when you know you have to do reductions in staff and so forth. So there's always that. So then if that's the problem, <laughs> uh, simplistically, how do we how do we do that? How do we how do we be bold, buck the system, knowing that there's fear, knowing that there's risk? How do we get to that point? I think you have to look inside yourself and understand what level of legacy and worth are you willing to gamble? I'll give you an example. There are things that I have done in large corporations, both as a consultant as well as an employee, that live on forever, that live on after I've left. Yes. Because I was bold, because I I decided to take the the different stance. And somebody decided to, you know, bet, bet on me. There's stuff out there right now that is living in other companies that I've been long gone from. And that to me feels really good because eventually I think everyone, I might be further advanced in age than many of your listeners, everyone will want, will get this feeling of like, what have I done that has lasted <laughs> in mm-hmm. that I've done that made a difference? Because I'll tell you, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that are, that, that are cogs in the wheel that in, in, the mach- in, in the company, right? That, look, man, I mean, here's what happens. You quit, you get fired, you whatever. Well, well, somebody else will put it in. They'll ask him to do the same thing and off you go. And you are just fulfilling this. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's a bad thing. I am suggesting, though, that somewhere along in your career, you're going to want to point back to something that says, well, what have I done? Like, what have I left? And maybe that thing is outside your profession. Maybe working pays the bills and then you're some kind of philanthropist and you're doing all sorts of really cool things and that's how you're going to do it. Great. I found myself in a, in a world where it's like, I want to leave something behind that I did that I made a difference in. And I, I don't want to be the person that decides that um, I'm just going to sort of fulfill a shoe. There's a set of shoes. There's a book by uh, Seth Godin called Lynchpin. 
Mm-hmm. And he, he talks about that, right? He, he talks about there's employees and there's this, and then there's the linchpin person, yeah. right? The linchpin is the person that makes the whole thing actually work. And it's that boldness or that the, I want to say courage, right? Because you do it, courage means you do it besides being fearful. Because let me tell you something, I, I sound so cavalier for the last 20 minutes that everyone's going to walk away thinking, you know, what an a-hole or whatever. But I'm, <laughs> I'm going to tell you that this boldness always contained fear. Yes. Okay. Yes. I'm going to also tell you that what I believe are some of my greatest ideas are still in the cutting room floor. I mean, they just never manifested themselves uh, out in the world because I got shot down. Right. I mean, and, and that was fearful. And I, I got passed up for the promotion or the raise or all. Yeah, all, I, I did all that. But I'm here sort of telling you from the other side of the hill, if you will, in our corporate world, that there'll become a time where, where you're going to sit there and go, you're going to reflect and say, what have I done? And that came to me. And so I thought I got to find a place where I can do stuff and leave a legacy. So you obviously were successful in corporate America. You're now independent, correct? Right. So if you were successful working the system, being bold, being the last one before everybody else was, you know, after everyone else was was fired to the example you gave. Yeah. Why did you jump ship? Why did you because go into I, I, Yeah, because I believe I was successful. Like 20 percent <laughs> successful, OK, which was okay. good enough for what I needed to do, but as opposed to being able to show my other 80 percent. Understood. Um, like I said, much, many more things that I thought should have taken fire are on the cutting room floor that actually made it. And so the question is, and, and by the way, I mean, I was, I was a good little soldier too. Understood. Um, you know, there's, there's parts of it. When you look at the whole situation, there's, here's the other thing. There were times when you take a look at the whole situation and go, you know, the boldness isn't worth it. There's there's way too many headwinds. There's way too many stuff going on here that even if I made it unscathed, it was it'd be a waste of energy and time. Right. So you sit there and go and you just kind of shake your head and go, this isn't really going to go anywhere. I know that. I think everyone else in the room also knows that. Yeah. But we're just going to move on. And, you know, I'll I'll I'll, you know, stand to fight another day. I, I totally can relate to that. I think uh, those who have been in your situation and have gone on to do their own thing could re- relate to that. I can relate to that. And even in this case in time, given my age and where I am in my career, we've been at this. I've been at this for 30 years. I'm much more careful as to the kinds of engagements I get involved in for that same reason. Am I really going to make a difference? Am I going to leave a legacy? If it's not something I can get my arms around and feel like I can really make a big impact, I might give it to somebody else. Or maybe we just won't take on that project. I, I, I'm going to sort of stick words in your mouth because what happens with someone like Dean, everybody, is that they can see the boldness in the future and mm-hmm. know that he's going to go there and know how everyone's going to react. And <laughs> those become the decision criteria. For what he just said there, right. I was kind of talking about you like well, you weren't here, but um, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's that's the point is you sometimes I mean, yeah. sometimes the boldness is like, oh, this is kind of what I think. I'm kind of 50 50 or maybe 51 49, just enough for me to open my mouth. 
and, and see where this takes us. And then there's people like you and I go, mm, I know what I'm going to say. <laughs> I know where this is going to take me. I know what that other client or, or prospect is going to say to me. And so therefore, I'm, I'm just going to sort of, you know, drive around and say, you know, thanks, but no thanks and keep it all amiable. Yeah. And it, and it, it makes me think about something else, Tom, because um, it's the, the idea that the boldness or the thing that you're going after is subject to the time frame in which that boldness lives. Meaning, mm-hmm. am I going to, is, is what am I, is my goal to be bold for something I'm trying to create this quarter, this month, this year? Or am I playing for something bold that is 10 years, 50 years, 100 years out? And when you start looking beyond that, even beyond your lifetime, all of a sudden, the size of what you're playing for becomes much bigger, becomes less about you, more about you moving it somewhere along the way. You can't move it all because it's going to require others to pick up where after you left off. And it becomes less transactional and more transformational. And that's what I've been focusing on lately is around you know, 50, 100-year visions, not five or 10-year. I, I agree with you. And I, I do believe that that comes with maturity and age. I think I do because we have a perspective of how long mm. things take. And, you know, there's, there's some, there's like a gestation period of an idea, if you will. Yeah. That just takes how long, you know, it just, you know, take nine months for a baby. I mean, that's, there's no short circuit to that. Right. Right. And so whatever the idea you're thinking about, someone to go, yeah, let's, let's just get to it. Let's just start. Boom, 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 boom. But you know, there's, resistance and change and angst and all this other stuff that comes with it that become headwinds and just slows the process down. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be thinking about it. I, um, you know, my tagline and LinkedIn, I, I'm a big, uh, a lot of the stuff that we've done in sales and our company sales conservatory is, you know, we're, we're very highly analytical, but that, and that analyticalness, if you will, all starts with a hypothesis or intuition. Mm-hmm. And that's, I don't think what anyone really understands that. As a matter of fact, that's how science works, right? You right. know, the, the, the fact, I mean, you always have the theory, right? You have the hypothesis that you have to go test to see right. if it works. And I'm a big Moneyball person, if you like that movie Moneyball and, yeah. and some of the things. And I've been talking a Brad lot Pitt. yeah, that, that, that parallel. And there's a statement in there that I've, I've absconded, right? So the statement is, I don't want to just win. I want to change the game. Mm. So you get to a point where it's like, look, I can win. I, right, I, can, I can go get hired by some big ass company and do really cool things and, and, and whatever and just churn. But mm-hmm. have I really changed the game? Right. And hey, it's, you know, it's not for the faint of heart, but someone like me, it's like, yeah, I don't want to just win. I want to change the game. That's a great quote. Remember that movie. That's, that's a really that's excellent. All right. So I want to go back to something and then and throw in another piece of this puzzle a little bit. You know, there's a, there's in a sense, if you take what you've said so far, there's a sort of an individual decision one makes around legacy and where they're going and being bold and being uncomfortable, being uncomfortable, realizing it could be career limiting, but you have to make that decision moving forward, you know, bucking the system. But what can structures do? What can organizations do to help encourage this? Like I've been kind of bouting, I'm thinking a lot with clients are coming to us about what's the right structure? You know, do we do matrix? Do we do something that Zappos did? We, do we flatten everything? 
And some of it makes sense, but some of it goes like, well, your problems around trust and accountability and getting people on the same page are still there no matter what structure you have. Yep. So from your background, and I know you've got some understanding on this subject, what's your yep. perspective around the organization's role and the and or the organization's structure in order to create this kind of learning culture that we've been sort of hinting at? So I am this time going to lean on some hardcore research and give you some very, very simple guardrails to follow. I'll give you two. Go for it. The first guardrail I'm going to give you is if you're trying to grow, whether it be through acquisition organically, the number one organizational relationship that moves you forward are horizontal relationships, mm. not vertical ones. So every year, every company, pretty much reorgs, right? Like that's the problem, right? Like we're going to move things around and we're going to optimize this and that and the other. And what usually means is who's going to get who, right? Because there's this hierarchical reward that you get as you move forward is you get people and, you know, all of that. And you get paid more for it and all the other stuff that goes with it. You get paid, right? All that other stuff, right? Yeah, right. So then here you go and you, you start moving these puzzles and the puzzles are all moved vertically. Right. They're all right. like moving. And a year later, you're doing it again. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, is vertical hierarchies and connections vertically have very little to do with organic or, or acquired growth. Mm. Horizontal ones do. Right. And so what I plead to leaders when they're talking about this, I say, look, just stop for a second. Don't start moving stuff around. What are you doing about facilitating the communication between the horizontal aspects of your organization? Mm. That's it. And if you look at me with a silly stare or a dumb stare, then, you know, then let's talk about it, right? Because moving people to another company or another hierarchy or something is, is just not where it's at. That's when things get done. So that's yep. thing number one. Thing number two comes from a, a, a great study by Beer and Noria called Cracking the Code of Change. Mm. And this is a longitudinal study. Longitudinal means over many years. Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to be that kind of academic. No, no, no. You're good. <laughs> I don't want, uh, for everyone out there, I'm not that one. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like the cool one. Um, so, <laughs> so over 40 years, they went and distilled lots of change management projects. And they came to the conclusion there's actually two changes. There's, an, there's a change for economic reasons and there's a change for capability reasons, period. End of story. Sorry it's for those that think they have some whiz-bang change. It eventually boils down to one of those two things. And, but they're very distinct. And they came up with six different dimensions on how you measure these, these changes. And they're all very different, mm -hmm. you know, leadership and all this other stuff. Uh, there's six of them. And again, you can look at the book. There's an HBR article about this too, that kind of okay. condenses the book. The book is really, the book is like five, 600 pages. Um, yeah. So here's the, here's, here's the, the punchline for organizations. So taking that, let's not dive into all the, let's just give you the one thing for you to have a successful economic financial change is a top-down command and control approach. For you to have an organizational capability change, that is a ground up um, 
bottom bottom up approach. Here's here's so pretty simple, right? Yeah. Um, here, here's what happens is somebody says we need to make new widgets. We need to be better at whatever we need to. These are all capability questions. Yes. And so you have the leader goes, thou shall go make more widgets. Yes. Go. And I'm going to command all of you to do that. And you better like your jobs and go be innovative and tell me when you're innovative and all that. That never works. And so the number of 70% of all initial change management projects fail is alive and well. Because it's a uh, management takes a top-down view of everything they do. Mm-hmm. And the organizational capability one is never going to work. Because it's um, bottom-up. It's, it's always bottom-up. So then people go, well, what do I do? Boom, go back to the thing. What are you doing to facilitate empowering yes. your employees to do that? By the way, I'm not one of those academics that gives big, mushy words. I'm going to define empowerment. Empowerment means I'm going to give you resources and authorities to do your job. Yeah, good. Like whatever it is that I want you to go do, like, hey, Dean, I want you to go innovate. Well, what the heck does that mean? Well, you need time, you need some resources, and you need the authority to maybe bring something to life. And, you know, I mean, I think like companies like Google kind of back in when they give somebody, I forget, it was like 24 hours a month or something like that to go off and think yeah. about some pet 20% project. time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. There's a, a few other. I mean, I think that's one way to do it is to and that's a resource and a capability. I don't know if they have the authority to actually pull the trigger on anything, but I mean, that's the idea. And so my point is, if you're trying to bring up an organizational capability and you're trying to create an organization, mind you, notice I don't I didn't tell you like how to have how many vice presidents or anything like that. I'm talking about the leaders that you have in place. Yes. How are you empowering the ground up view to create that organizational capability? And so anyway, so those are the two guardrails I would put out there for those organizations and structures. Now, you know, every industry and and, and every company or so has their own way of sort of running business. Okay, take all of that, but pour it into that those molds, if you will, and see what you get. No, it makes a lot of sense. It's very, sorry, it's intuitive um, and, it, and it bears fruit based on what I've seen as well. But just briefly explain, you mentioned the, the capabilities part, yeah. but it's bottom up. But then, then you mentioned the economic change is more top down. Correct. Just throw a sentence or two. Why that? Why and what? How does that work? Given this, these two guardrails you mentioned. Yeah. So let's go to the economics. So the economics, sort of a top down. You know, the first one that comes to mind is you know, sort of reduction in expenses. Right. I mean, that's that's a leadership view that has to understand how close to the bone do I cut without sort of killing my business, and they've got greater levels of visibility when it comes down to that. Mm. Jump over to the organizational capability. Who do you think has the greatest capability of how things are done? A person who's doing it, right. Frontline employee or manager. Correct. So if I want to do something different, who do I ask? (laughs) Well, in some ways, like I'm, I'm thinking about companies that I know that are or have gone through mergers and acquisitions, and they might say, well, the change that we're trying to create as a result of this merger or this acquisition is both economic because we need an infusion of cash and we want to expand our capabilities. We're getting into different markets and so on. So are you then proposing that that particular type of But you situation said two things right there. Yes. Yes, you can do both. both. Right. Yeah. But, but you said two things. 
you said I'm, 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 you know, I'm merging because there's some cost benefit, but yes. I'm also merging because I want to get into new markets. Okay, great. Correct. Let the people at the top figure the first part and let the people at the bottom figure the second figure part. The bottom, God, good. Again, how many times did that happen? No, not about very like often. never. Right. So, yeah, so that, yeah, so that's my point. Right. And so I always say, if, if you're trying to build organizational capability, meaning you want to do something better, different, or, you know, you've got to ask the people that are doing it. And then you've got to give them the empowerment to go be able to then do it and l- allow that to bubble up yeah. and let, a, let leadership and management figure out how they're going to manage it. Right. Right. Very good. Excellent stuff, Tom. I could talk with you all day, my friend. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I, I was I was excited. I was I was prepared for uh, for the question, though. And I'm, I'm I don't know well, if I'm I sad had, or the question or not. The the life changing question. <laughs> I got stuff you we never even life talked life to. Life, right? I did my right. homework, man. <laughs> yeah, good for you, man. Well, listen. How can people follow you? What what what's what's going on with you in the future? And how can we follow what you're all about? So I, I'm very active in LinkedIn. I've got Twitter um, and I've got a website, salesconservatory.com. But for me, to, for me to sort of drink my own Kool-Aid and feel like I can sleep at night and say all the things that I just said and still live it, I have a what's called a Voxer account. And a Voxer is kind of like a hybrid text slash voicemail account. And it's Dr. Tom Tonkin, Dr. Tom Tonkin. And some people go, you know, Tom, this is all great. And I don't want to follow you. I don't read your stuff. But I do have one question. Great. That's what Voxer's built. Get on Voxer. It's free. Find me. Send me the question. I'll answer the question. Have a good life. Because my view of this is we, I need to lower the barrier of entry to discussions. A good point. There's no need for meetings and all this other stuff when you just have a simple thing. Maybe it turns into a meeting, which, by the way, usually they do. Yeah. but we have some level of clarity very, very quickly. Good. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being a guest. Well, thank you for having me, Dean. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to The Business of Intuition. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about Dean or Mission Facilitators Leadership, go to mfileadership.com. That's mfileadership.com.